our Revelation study. It's been 10 weeks of class, but it's been about three months, I think, since we started, it feels like. So uh, I appreciate you guys all making it all the way through. Uh, this is the this is some of the most um, powerful and inspiring imagery in the whole book. Uh, this is also probably some of the parts of Revelation that have the most disagreement about them. And so uh, you'll recognize those parts. I bet even if you don't think you're very familiar with Revelation, we'll get to some. We'll be reading some of the stuff, and you'll go, "Oh, okay, that's where that comes from." Uh, and so what we're going to try to do is take a, uh, a as wide a view as possible, and and we're going to try to keep in mind everything we've been talking about so far throughout the book and what John is trying to do with this and and trying to really ground everything that we're going to read in chapters 20 and 21 and 22 in that original uh, message of the seven churches. Uh, So we're hopefully going to be able to approach it that way and say, okay, uh, John was talking about all of this stuff for a particular specific reason. And it was, it was to provide some inspiration and hope and correction to these seven churches. And so how does everything that we're going to be talking about in the end of this last couple of weeks uh, relate to that? The good news is, after all this waiting that we've been doing throughout this whole ten weeks, when it's saying the end's here, but it's not quite here yet. But it's here, but it's not quite here yet. But it's here, but it's not quite here yet. Well, now it's here, for real. So, um, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, again, just by way of review, we opened up on the island of Patmos. It was this itty-bitty little island uh, off the coast of modern-day Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. And we met John, who is a prophet. He was somehow connected to this network of churches on the mainland, but he was on the island. Uh, We don't know exactly why. It just said, for the sake of the Lord. Uh, So we assume he was experiencing some kind of persecution, and that was why he was on this island. But it's Sunday. He's worshiping, and he has this prophetic vision. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he turns, and he sees a revelation of Jesus himself. And it's blinding, and John falls down, and then Jesus tells John, essentially to take dictation, that he has a message for the seven churches uh, in Asia. And so John begins uh, writing down these letters that Jesus is sending to the churches. And what we quickly see, once we get into these churches, is that All seven of the churches are facing essentially the same problem, which is that they are trying to follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't acknowledge him. Uh, They are trying to serve Jesus as Lord when the culture around them worships Caesar as Lord. And so they're having problems, they're having conflicts, they're having tensions uh, because they are trying to be faithful in a culture that is faithless. And we see the, the different churches, as you might imagine, are trying to resolve that tension in different ways. A couple of the churches were staying faithful to Jesus, and when Jesus talks to them, he basically just says, good job, keep up the good work, you guys. But most of the other the other five churches were having some kind of problems. Uh, one of the churches was uh, had become very legalistic, and so it was doing a good job of keeping out false teaching and staying true to the what maybe we could call the fact of the gospel, but it had lost the spirit of the gospel. Somehow in their attempts to make sure that everyone stayed in line, they had actually quit looking like Jesus. And so Jesus chastised them and said, you you can't do that. You can't lose the spirit of uh, of what makes the gospel the gospel. Uh, Some of the other churches then were in various degrees of compromise. A couple of the churches had allowed some false teachers into their church. They were advocating compromise, advocating idolatry, advocating some sort of uh, syncretism with the Roman culture around them. Again, we didn't get a lot of details, but uh, we saw that conflict continue to play out through the rest of the book. And then a couple of the churches were just in really, 
really bad shape. Uh, one of them, Jesus said, you know, you have this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Like, you're not alive at all. Uh, and then the other church, the Laodiceans, uh, were so uh, enculturated. They were so wrapped up in their own culture instead of in the culture of the gospel and in the culture of Jesus that the analogy Jesus uses that he showed up in town and no one even knew who he was because the church had had so little impact on the community. And, and indeed, they themselves were not even expecting Jesus. Uh, they were so not a church. And so uh, to all of these churches, though, they all get the same singular revelation of Jesus. It's all the same Jesus that's giving this revelation to all of these churches. And so, um, again, we saw that for all of the churches, no matter how you're responding to this crisis of faithfulness, the answer is always to look back to Jesus and to say, who is Jesus and am I following him? Uh, Or am I getting caught up in my culture? So with the messages delivered then, uh, John got caught up into the heavenly throne room. Uh, He heard a voice. The voice brought him up in the spirit into heaven. And he is standing, at at first he's just standing in the heavenly throne room. He's looking around and he's seeing uh, that in heaven there's this representation that all of creation is worshiping God. You know, these four creatures and these 24 elders and everything, all that's happening in heaven all the time is that uh, creation is worshiping God. And we saw that this was a sort of Wizard of Oz moment where they got to, John got to peek behind the veil of reality. Because on the ground, on the island of Patmos and all of these seven churches, it didn't look like God was on the throne. It didn't look like God was in charge. If, if you looked around, it looked like Rome was on the throne. And that's what Rome certainly wanted you to think. Right? And so John gets to go up into the spirit, into heaven, and see what's really going on. And he sees that the problem, the reason that God's will is not being done on earth the way it is in heaven, the reason that the thrones of earth don't look like the throne room in heaven is because of sin. Uh, the human tendency to turn away from God to say, uh, my will, not thy will, was, was preventing, is, is like the blockage that's keeping, uh, keeping God from being worshipped. And keeping creation from fulfilling its potential. And so there was this wonderful scene where uh, there's, you know, there's a divine scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. And no one could be found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll. And we talked about how that was a metaphor for sin. And so John begins to weep and to lament because he was sort of wondering, well, is anything ever going to get fixed? Or do we just have to keep putting up with the consequences of sin on earth? And then one of the elders says, no, look, over there the lion of the tribe of Judah has come conquering. And we got our second revelation of Jesus, which was no longer this like crazy figure with the white hair and all of that stuff. But instead we, we look over expecting this conquering lion and instead we see a slaughtered lamb. And so that was our first picture of, and, and we knew this, but the way John put it together was so cool that the way Jesus conquered, the way he defeated sin, the way he defeated death, the way he overcome, uh, overcame human wickedness was by dying, by, by sacrificing himself to overcome that. And so uh, then Jesus is worthy, and so he takes the scroll, and all of heaven breaks into this new worship song. You know, instead of just saying, holy, 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 the one who was and is and is, now they're saying, worthy are you who was slain to take the scroll and to open its seals. And so then we saw the lamb begin to open the scroll, begin to unseal it, and begin to enact the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And what we saw then was you had a problem because the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of people cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And so as Jesus began to unseal the scroll, literally all hell began to break loose on earth. And we saw uh, we saw that this was a direct attack on Rome's rule, that all of these things that Rome were, was promising 
John revealed to be false promises. And so there's a, there's a peace that Rome promised and a peace that Jesus promised. And we saw you can't have it both ways. And only one of them actually leads to life. And if you follow the way of Rome, it always is going to end in death. And that was, that was sort of the first real look that we got at the kind of conflict we were dealing with. That there are these two ways, and there's this one way that's promising you life in the culture. And it's tempting and it's alluring but that way ultimately is going to destroy you. And, and we have this, these first kind of warnings that this is not what you want to get caught up in. And so then uh, towards the end of this throne room section, we got this great uh, pause, you know, right, right before the, the seventh trumpet. When we've just been told there's not going to be any more delay, then we get this big long delay. And we see uh, this picture of John being asked to, you know, being told to eat the scroll of the will of God, this, this idea that we this the will that we knew was being enacted on earth. And then these two witnesses. Uh, and then, uh, and so we talked about there that the church has a prophetic obligation to the world. That we are to live out the way of Christ among the people of the world. That Jesus' story is supposed to be our story. And that we actually bear witness to the story of the Lamb. That we are the people who are living this out in front of the world. And so that's our obligation. That's our calling. And then once we, once we got the story of the two witnesses done and we saw, you know, it's not just that we get to sit back on the sidelines and watch God's plan unfold, but we have to actually live that out in the world. Then we finally got the last trumpet. And then the heavens were opened and the Ark of the Covenant was revealed and God went from being the one who was and who is and who is to come to just being the one who was and who is because uh, the kingdom of heaven had become the kingdoms of this world and everything was done. And that was the end of chapter 11, and we still had a whole lot of book left. So we were going, what, what is happening now? So in the beginning of chapter 12, we backed up and we did the whole story again, but we kind of spun the diamond a little bit and looked at a, at a different facet of what was going on because there was still a really big question to answer, and that was, well, if this is God's world, and yeah, we understand that sin is getting in the way, but how is it that God's people are suffering so much? How is it that these seven churches are experiencing such conflict that even apparently one of them had been martyred? And so it started in heaven, and it started with the birth, the incarnation of Jesus, uh, and then the, the crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension that was all kind of packed in to the story of this woman giving birth to this child. And we talked about that at, in, in that event, in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, Satan was actually cast out of heaven and cast down onto the earth. And that set the stage for everything that was going to come because Satan was defeated, evil was done with, and it was hopeless. And now, moving forward from there, the only way that evil could hurt God or hurt God's people was, was through compromise. Getting them to not be faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Getting them to be complicit somehow in other gospels, other ways of life. And so the, the big question at the end of chapter 12 is, well, how, how is the dragon going to do this? And so the, we, then we saw that the dragon uses these beasts. And there were two particular beasts that the dragon called forth. One was this beast from the sea that represented the human tendency towards empire. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about how this beast like clearly represented Rome in several ways, but it was obviously also bigger than Rome. And John kept calling it Babylon over and over and over. And so we talked about this innate human tendency and the sinful tendency that we've seen in Revelation over and over to try to be like God, to try to take God's place, to try to remake the world in our own image. And that can happen on a small personal scale or it can happen on a national scale or an international scale. And the bigger it gets, the more, uh, the more cruel and, and the more harsh it gets. But it's that, always that same 
impulse, that Babylon impulse. That's really the it was the first sin. It was that pride. It was I think I can I think I can do this better than God can. I think if I were really the one in charge, I would have a better world. And we usually say it as well. If everyone would just do do things my way, things would go a lot better. But it's it's that same impulse that that is how empires start. Some king looks around and he's like. You know, if everyone just did this my way, it'd be a lot better. And then they send their armies out to conquer and make everyone do things their way. So we saw that that, that impulse was represented by this, this beast that takes over the world. And, and people everywhere are basically shocked and awed by the majesty and the power of this beast. And then there's a third thing. So you have the dragon, you have the sea beast, and then you have this land beast. And we saw that this was probably the most dangerous and the most insidious one because it looks like a lamb. But it speaks the words of the dragon. And so we saw that this is one that's in, this is those false teachers inside of the church. People in the church who are advocating uh, compromise and, compl- and being complicit with the culture. And so it's, it's an ally of the sea beast. And they both serve the dragon because what they're essentially ending up doing is they're convincing the people of God not to follow the way of the lamb. Not to be faithful to the witness and the testimony of Jesus. Instead, they are being uh, complicit in the ways of the beast. And, and ultimately, it doesn't really matter which way or which beast, because uh, I think, as Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, right? But narrow is the way that leads to life. There's, there's one way, the way of Christ, that leads to life. And if you're not on that, well, it doesn't really matter where you're going. Like, it doesn't, you know, uh, I, I heard someone say one time, you know, that Satan doesn't want everyone to worship him. Like, it's not that he wants worship. He just doesn't want you with God. So, like, you can worship yourself or you can worship any false religion that you want or whatever. Like, the important thing is that you're not worshiping God. Uh, and so we, we saw that with these two beasts, that you know, they're, they're, they're getting people all over the world to marvel at their power. And, and so by the end of this little section, we saw this, these two trinities being established. You know, one was God and Jesus and the church on one side. You know, uh, the one who is seated on the throne who receives worship, the lamb who is his faithful witness, who is re- rescued and redeemed to creation, and then the people who are called to bear testimony to that, to bear witness to that, to point everyone to that. And on the other hand, we had the dragon who was opposed to God. We had the false beast from the sea who mimicked Jesus, who claimed to rule the world, who pointed everyone towards worshiping the dragon. And then we had those in the church who advocated and pointed everyone towards that. So we had these two uh, opposing forces. And, and we really, from this point forward, started seeing really sharp lines being drawn in the sand and Revelation demanding that we really examine which side are we on. Are we a part of the armies of the dragon and the beast? Or are we a part of the army of the lamb? And, and we kept going back and forth. So then after that, we met uh, Babylon, the, 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 the whore of Babylon. And we saw, this was, I think, all last week, or the last time we met, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and so we saw that there are these two, these two women that you can look to as your, sort of your, your mother. Uh, one is uh, a parody of the goddess Roma. Uh, she's the, the, the sort of the religion of empire that, that encourages you to, um, to follow the way of, of the other beast. And so she's presented at the beginning of chapter 17 as this beautiful woman, but she's all decked out in, uh, you know, jewels and all this. And she has a wine cup in her hand and she's sort of like lounging on the back of this beast. And by the end of that section, the beast has turned and consumed her. And so again, we looked at, this is 
Just another example of John saying, look, when you follow the promises of Rome, uh, you're always disposable to Rome, to the beast, to whatever. Um, they don't they don't want you. They just use you and use you up. And then when you're done, they consume you. And that's what we saw happen to her. And so then um, after that, we saw this big funeral for her. And all of these people who had made money from her and who had been invested in her way of life were mourning because all that was over. And they, they, they were cut off from all of their prosperity and all of their wealth and all of these kinds of things. So there's all of this mourning. And so then after a couple of chapters uh, dealing with the, the horror of Babylon, we then got to the bride of Christ. And we saw that, again, this is the people who follow God. This is the people who worship God. And now, uh, now they're being represented as this beautiful woman who's all adorned uh, for her wedding day. And uh, there was this big announcement of this big feast. And then that was kind of where we ended last week was we came back and we saw uh, Jesus. It, it cut immediately. They're like, hey, get ready for the wedding feast. And then it cut back down to earth. And we saw this scene of the lamb Except now he's this big warrior riding in on this horse. And the armies, all of the armies of the world had gathered to do battle. And uh, instead of doing any kind of battle, there was a very, it was just very brief. The, the, the beast and the false prophet, the, uh, the land beast and the sea beast were captured, thrown into the lake of fire, which again just happened just almost immediately. And then all of these people who had been following them, were cut down by the sword of the rider. And so we spent a little bit of time talking about how interesting it was that instead of a sword that was wielded in his hand, this was a sword that came out of his mouth. And that was actually the testimony of Jesus, that, that the word of God is something that has been pictured as a sword in the scriptures. It's a common metaphor for, uh, for the word of God. And so it makes sense that Jesus, who is the word of God, would be pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth and that what defeats evil is not God coming down and arm wrestling evil into submission, but it's it's the life and witness and work of Jesus. It's again, just like we saw back in chapter five with the Lamb, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that, that finally ultimately puts an end to evil. And so we ended with this really gruesome uh, image of this wedding feast, because then after all of these people had been cut down, an angel announced, Behold the great marriage supper of the Lamb, and then it invited all of the birds of the air to feast, and then they all gorged themselves on the battlefield and so we spent a little bit of time talking about uh how the how um how roma how the how the, the horror of babylon ends up ends up being a almost a sympathetic figure because uh because in the end it's it's almost like she didn't know what she was doing um all of these people are the people that the church was to bear witness to and they're uh they're, the pe- they're ultimately people that were created by God, that God loves, that God wanted to redeem, but they were people who would not or maybe were not informed to turn away from the beast. And so all, th- and again, so we saw all through over and over and over throughout uh, this whole book, we've been seeing this prophetic charge of the church that we have an obligation to the world. We have an obligation to people that because we know the message of Christ, because we know that there is only one way that leads to life, that it is our responsibility it's our calling from god to live that out and to be that in the world because we know what's coming because we know what's in store uh and and i sort of puzzled last time uh if if this is any sort of a picture of what it's going to be like in the end how well will we be able to enjoy our wedding feast when we know that um, people are being slaughtered uh, because they did not know 
because they did not choose. Um, I don't know. It's 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 just it's gruesome, and I think it's intentionally gruesome. I, you know, I I think that that the reason that John put that in there is to to give a strong challenge to us to say, don't just get so caught up in celebrating your own salvation that you forget the people who who still need to know the truth. So, so that's where we left off last time. Whew. All right. So now we're ready for chapter twenty. Um. Okay. So, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and, on, and those thrones seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Let's pause there and work through uh, some of this imagery. Um, So the dragons, now again, what we just witnessed was the dragon's army being defeated, right? They had all gathered together and then Jesus came out riding on a horse And they all got defeated, and the beast and the false prophet got thrown in the lake of fire. Uh, So now John has just seen that, so now he's seen the end of Satan himself. And and he's given, he's called the dragon, but then he's given that same threefold name that we saw clear back in chapter 12 when he was first uh, introduced. He was called that dragon, uh, that ancient serpent, the devil, and the Satan. Uh, and so he, John, I guess in case we forgot, John wants to make very sure that he's tying this defeat of Satan with that first defeat that we saw back in chapter 12. And so it's interesting that, you know, in John's, in John's sacred geography, there's sort of three, la- three levels or three layers to, to the universe. There's heaven and then earth and then under the earth, right? We've seen that several times. And so we saw back in chapter 12 when we met the dragon, we saw him fall from heaven down to earth. And so now here at the end of the story in chapter 20, we're seeing him be cast from the earth now down to under the earth into the abyss, right? So that's just, that's a fun thing. Now, if you want to start a fight among Christians, there are several things you can bring up. But one of them would be the millennium, right? This thousand years. Uh, you, you could just be like, hey, what do you guys think the millennium is going to be like? And then you just leave, and you can probably come back an hour later, and they'll all be fighting with each other, okay? Um, seriously, since, since before the Bible was even put together as what we have now, which was in about 400, so like way before that, Christians were arguing 
and discussing, I mean, nicely, but also sometimes not as nicely, uh, what the nature of this thousand years is and when it's happening. Uh, some people think that this, it's happening before the second coming. So basically everything, like this whole thousand years is going to happen and at the end of it, Jesus comes back. They're called post-millennialists. Some people think that the second coming happens first, like that Jesus riding on the white horse is like the second coming. And then there's this thousand year reign and they're called premillennialists. Right, uh, and then there's all kinds of other like some. There are some people who think that it's largely metaphorical. Uh, they're they're called they're called amillennialists. Or there's all kinds of there's again there's about as many people who have written a commentary on it. There's probably that many different views on the millennium. Um, and and really it does go all the way back to church fathers. As I was reading through all my commentaries and stuff for all of this, they're like, oh yeah, Irenaeus says this, and Origen says this, and Augustine says this. And it's funny because when you read each individual commentator, you're like, oh yeah, that's that's what I think too. And then you read some guy that disagrees with him, and you're like, oh man, that's really really good. I think I'm with that guy. And you read someone else, and you're like, man, that's brilliant. Like, okay, yeah, that. Um, so the the whole point of all of that is it's it's challenging, and it is fun to ask when is this happening. But a more important question than when is why. Why is John telling us this? What is the point of talking about a millennial kingdom? Uh, what function does that play in revealing the character and the nature of Jesus to these seven churches who are struggling to be faithful in a faithless culture? Right? That's actually that's why John wrote this book. That's why Jesus is being revealed to these seven churches. And so we need to ask, first and foremost, that question. And so with that in mind, um, I want to make two observations about uh, some, some statements about humanity and about God that this text makes, no matter when you locate the millennial kingdom. Uh, first of all, once Satan is bound... You see a first resurrection, which is what it's called, right? Of all of those who were martyred for holding to the testimony of Jesus. Okay? Now, way back when Jesus undid the fifth seal, we met these martyrs under the altar. And they were people who had been specifically martyred for holding to the testimony of Jesus. And they were saying, how much longer, O God, until you avenge us? Right? And instead of answering them, God said, here's a white robe, shush. And so we, along with them, have been waiting. I think that was in chapter 6. So we've been waiting 14 chapters and a lot of weeks to find out that same answer. Like, well, wait a second. If God is really faithful, if, if the way of Jesus really does lead us to peace and life of fulfillment, and the way of Rome really doesn't lead us to peace and life and fulfillment, then when is that going to happen? Because... You look around and it seems like, especially in the time of the Revelation, it seems like Rome's way is what leads to peace and life and fulfillment. The, pa- the, the, the Pax Romana is, is really the ticket. And the Pax Jesus that seems like a raw deal. So when, when are you going to do this? Well, now here we finally see the answer. Right? They are resurrected, they are given thrones, and they rule with Christ. So there is, a, there is first of all, Again, no matter where you locate the millennium, there is a powerful statement about the, the, the ultimate trustworthiness of the Pax of Jesus over and against the Pax of Rome or Babylon or whatever other empire you want to stick in there. That, that really and truly only Jesus has conquered death. Only Jesus can save you from death. So only Jesus' peace is actually, truly everlasting. Everyone else's ends in death. 
secondly, and this one's just frustrating, I think, notice how easily, again, how easily humanity is deceived. Okay? Because those institutions of empire and religious complicity, the, the sea beasts and the land beasts, they've been gone for a thousand years. They were thrown in the lake of fire, and then you had a thousand years, which again, in Revelation parlance, is just like a whole lot of years. Right? Ten is the number of totality. So you got ten times ten times ten. Like, that's just, it's not even like literally like a thousand. It's just like, it's just like, like saying a bajillion, gajillion years. So it's, it's almost like God was like, here, humanity, I'm going to help you out. Okay? We're going to get rid of all of these broken, fallen institutions that, give, that, that, that help you sin. And we're going to give you a thousand years, a bajillion, gajillion years without them. And Satan's going to be locked up so he can't deceive you. Okay? So you got a bajillion, gajillion years to get it all worked out of your system. And then we're going to let them out. And then what happens? It doesn't take five years. It doesn't take 50 years. It doesn't take a year. Immediately, he deceives the nations of the earth again. Again, without the benefit of these institutions. And assembles all of the kingdoms of the world to wage war on the saints. And so, I think an important statement that's being made here is that the, the problem of evil is, is fundamentally a condition of the human heart. Are, institu- are human institutions broken and fallen? Yes, they are. Absolutely, they are. They're made by people that are fallen and broken. They're run by people who are fallen and broken. Yes. And it's important for us to work for justice at the institutional level. But we have to understand that the actual real problem of evil lies in our, in our hearts. And you can fix every institution you want. And you can have Jesus himself sitting on earth ruling everything. Okay, you can't get a better, more perfect institution than that. And yet still, if you do not fix the problem of the human heart, you haven't fixed the problem. The only thing that can fix the human heart is the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. We're a bunch of dead people who need to be made alive again. And there are a few places that argue that as persuasively in my mind as this millennial kingdom passage. Because you give us every benefit in the world to be good, it doesn't matter. Okay. Any questions about that? I mean, again, I know I'm. Maybe afterwards we can discuss when. When. That's and again, I don't. I don't mean to trivialize that question. I think it's a fun question. Um, I have some opinions. I don't have any conclusions yet, but I have a lot of opinions. Uh, but I think if we get caught up on the when question, we miss what John really wants us to know about the nature of evil, about the nature of ourselves, and about the faithfulness of Jesus. And so um, that's why I kind of want to stay up here for now, stay up here at 30,000 feet, and, and just kind of kind of see that, and, and, and hopefully that hopefully those are statements that everyone's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. And then we can, if we want to disagree later, we can disagree about the fun stuff. Um, if you take it at face value, Adam and Eve were the first in the account, they would deceive, well, we could logically sit there and say, well, okay, it's the enemy that uh, has cursed all of mankind because it was, you know, but, but this and turns around and says, okay, let's take that one out of the equation and see what happens anyway. Mm-hmm. And it says exactly what you said. And that yeah. is the, the independence, the 
rebellious nature of mankind, apart from what yeah. Satan did, is still the issue. Yeah. Which and points right back to the fact that without a savior, you're lost. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, who is it, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, right? I mean, that's, we like that, and it's funny, and, you know, whatever. But we all, like, we all know it's not true. You know, we all know that ultimately, maybe the devil enticed me. But, but ultimately, and, and I think James is one of my favorite go-to pastors, right? James, James is like, look, you're tempted, let's be real. You're tempted by your own evil desires. That's what you're tempted by. You can have all the help in the world. And again, there's, there's, so there, like back to the broken institutions, absolutely institutions can make it easier for us to sin and to be complicit in sin. Um, but at the end of the day, we're the ones that make the choices and we're the ones that are held accountable for those choices. And until our, until our souls are redeemed and regenerated, like we're lost and that's it. So wouldn't you say during that thousand year period if the... Uh if the faithful are taken out prior to that, then what you have are unredeemed people, if you will. Well, they may be redeemed because they they saw Jesus during the tribulation period, and their progeny are still there. So you still have a unregenerated people Absolutely. during the yeah. thousand years, but Satan has been removed from the equation yes. so that they can't say, the devil made me do it. Right. Because Satan is out, but they right. still have to deal with the sin nature, absolutely. which came into play when Adam and yes. Eve absolutely. first rebelled. So yep. they have to have their chance. Yes, yeah, and and that's that's what I think is so fascinating about you know here it's it's good it's like okay we took Satan out of the equation Jesus is like walking around on the earth rain like how many more things like that's more than we did you know so how like how how many more how many more gimmies do you need. But yet, in the end, it, it still doesn't make diff- a difference for a lot of people. Uh, and that's, I think it's telling, but it's, all, it's also unfortunate. Because, um, yeah, so, so uh, anyway, so Satan gets back out. You know, they let him out. He deceives the nations of the earth, brings them back together. Uh, in, a, in a reference back to the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them, which if you remember that story in the scriptures, the issue at stake was idolatry, right? People were worshiping Baal, or Baal, Baal, instead of worshiping Yahweh, and so they had a contest, and Yahweh won by sending fire down from heaven, and so here again, what, what's happening? People are not following God, they're following other gods, and so the, the same kind of judgment is the same, and that's a theme we've seen all the way through Revelation, Idolatry leads to death. Idolatry leads to death. Idolatry leads to death. Do not go those ways. Okay, uh, let's read the rest of chapter 20. We're moving right along. Finally, I don't remember who asked, but sometime a long time ago, someone said, what is the second death? Well, here we are. Um, Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it, the earth and heaven, fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. Um, so finally, 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 we have the last judgment. Uh, God's throne is revealed and everything. It's that even heaven and earth fled from his presence. So think back to when we were looking at the seals and the sixth seal was this great earthquake and the peoples of the world cried out to the mountains and to the caves and they said, hide us from the wrath of God and of the lamb. Well, now that's not an option because everything has fled and it's, it's sort of like humanity is standing exposed utterly and fully before God. And then sure enough, what happens? They bring out these books they open up these books, and everyone is judged according to their deeds. Now, uh, it is easy to read this and think, now wait a second, is that works-based salvation? Like, is essentially what we're doing here is we're, we're flipping through these books and seeing if people checked off enough boxes, and then if they did, they're in, and if not, lake of fire. Um, I mean, that, that can very easily be what it sounds like. Uh, but... We know from the rest of the scriptures that, that that's not that's not what can, that can't be what's happening here. Uh, instead, I would say that we're asking when we look at these books, what story does your life bear out? When we look at your life, not your version of your life, but your life, whose story did you live out? Were you living out the story of the beast or of the lamb? Were you living out the story of the Bride of Christ or of the Whore of Babylon? And I don't, you know, I don't want to know what you say because at that point we know what everyone would say, right? At some point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So we know what you're going to say. Then what we want to know is what did you really believe? And we know that not by quizzing you, but by watching you. If we watch your life, Who's, who was your Lord? Were you living out the way of the Lamb or the, or the way of the beast? And so then in the end, we finally find this second death. And it's this lake of fire. And if you look at who's in it at this point, it's all of the people who oppose God, right? The sea beast is already there. The land beast is already there. The dragon is already there. But now we're adding in death and Hades. And these are the enemies of God. These are the enemies of humanity. They're the agents of sin. They're the embodiments of evil. Right? They're these big, um, you know, sort of like when we were looking at the political cartoons. Uh, and you saw an elephant. I think I have that in here somewhere. Um, you know, when, when you see the elephant and the donkey, you're not like, you know, which congressman are they talking about? Right? No, that's Democrats or Republicans. It's more than any one person. But it's made up of people, but it's more than any one person. You know, um, that's sort of that, that's, that's what, you know, who's in this lake of fire right before we get to this passage, it's all of that. It's these big institutional evils, right? These big representative kinds of evils, but who follows them into the lake of fire are those who have been following them their whole lives. And so by the end, by the time we get to this second death, um, the people who are in the lake of fire, they, they, they're continuing to follow their leader, right? They're continuing to go where the people that they've given their lives to are. And way, way, way back in chapter 2, Jesus promised the Smyrnans who were getting persecuted, hang on, because if you are faithful to me, then you will be spared from the second death. And sure enough, we see who is not in the lake of fire is all of those 
who were faithful to the Lamb. All of those who trusted in it. All of those who did not love their lives more than they loved Jesus. And so they clung to the testimony of the Lamb, even at the cost of their own lives. They experienced the first death, but they're spared from the second death. Any thoughts, comments? I think this is a controversial section also because I've heard both ways in the sense that he says, I saw the dead small grace standing before God. Well, does that mean everybody is mean us? Sure. And then some people say, no, I can't mean Christians because they want heaven already or something. Right. Well, and you you know you saw a little bit of that with the millennial kingdom and people. Yeah. So there is there is some and and we can say this safely. There is some question about whether this is the final judgment of everyone or the final judgment of everyone who hasn't been judged yet, like everyone that's left over who hasn't already been judged somewhere else. But uh, but in Revelation as a whole, like it, it's clear that everyone faces judgment, and so your name is either in the Lamb's Book of Life or it's not. And. Um, and yeah, maybe you were a martyr who already got resurrected and you've been like reigning in the millennial kingdom or something. And so you're like, like, oh, we already did. I don't know. Maybe there's enough people that got broken into chunks and was like, we'll do these guys here and these, I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so there is some, you're right. There is some question and some controversy about who exactly is all of these people. Um, but everyone faces judgment. Period. I'm mean, period. Whether that it's comes it, down to Matthew 25 with the separation of the sheep and the goats. Yeah. Yeah. So that's again. We. I think. I think. I think John's less concerned with exactly when and where everyone gets judged, more with the, the reality that it happens. And again, what what it comes down to is whose way are you following? Is it is it the lambs or is it not the lambs? Thought in my head on it, Matthew twenty-five. Sheep naturally will follow the shepherd. The goats will not follow. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. That does fit in very well. Yeah. Huh. Very good. I did not know that about goats. That they will just kind of do whatever they want. I knew they ate whatever they wanted, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Any, any, sorry, any other thoughts about the second death lake of fire? Let's talk about New Jerusalem then. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So a quick little side comment here as we're reading. Uh, notice John's proclivity for using... Uh, women and cities to represent people, right? The whore of Babylon uh, was, and then Babylon the city slash the great city was all these, you know, this. Now here we have the bride of Christ who is also a city, who is the new Jerusalem coming down. Uh, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done, or maybe it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the solicitors, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pause there. So we have this actually lengthy speech from God, which is the longest of its kind in Revelation. And it's interesting because uh, if you go all the way back to Genesis, God created the world by speaking. And so now here we have God recreating the world, reestablishing creation, getting everything back to the way it was always supposed to be by speaking. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So now we have the promise that God gave to Abraham, clear back in Genesis 12, right? Uh, the, The promise that God made to Moses, the promise that God made to David. All of Israel's story is coming to fulfillment here in this new Jerusalem that's come down out of heaven to be on earth with humanity. So God's no longer dwelling in a tent, a tabernacle. God's not confined to a temple. In fact, we're going to see that in a minute, there isn't even a temple anymore. God is now completely, holy, fully dwelling on earth with humanity, which is the way it was back in Genesis 1 and 2. And now we're finally back there. Finally. It's finished. Death has been defeated. It's all over. So let's read about this city. Uh, Okay, we're going to read, we're actually going to read 9 through 22, 7. So, here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the glory of God and... uh, Uh, and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the walls of the city has twelve foundations, and on them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 1,500 miles, which is uh, 12,000 stadium. Uh, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured the wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh uh, jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates are the twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there any more, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light forever, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, for the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, has sent an angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. Okay. So in an echo of when we first met the whore of Babylon, now we're meeting the bride of Christ, right? One of the angels with the bulls comes to John and says, hey, I'm going to come show you this woman. But now again, instead of the woman riding the beast, now we get this city coming down out of heaven. Um. I think, it's, I think it's worth noting that the core difference between these two women is their sexuality. Um, one was called the mother of harlotry, the mother of whores. And then one is a pure virgin bride who is having her wedding day. And so we see the same theme of adultery as idolatry that we've seen uh, throughout the scriptures, really, throughout the prophets and, and, and certainly throughout Revelation. Right. The, the question in Revelation is, who is faithful and who is idolatrous, adulterous? And so we, we see that again with these two women. Um, the city itself is, again, another symbol for the people of God. There are 12 of this and 12 of that and 12 of the other thing over there. Uh, the city walls are 12 by 12. And there's 144,000 of this, 144,000 of that. There's just 12s everywhere you look. Um, the, the 12 gates are the tribes of Israel, the foundations of the 12 apostles. Um, it's, it's ready made to be on earth cause it's a four. It's a, it's a perfect cube, right? Four, 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 four everywhere. Um, I want to look at the character of the city because there are so many very interesting statements that are made about it. Um, first of all, and I think I have this on your, on your note page, uh, the city is built of the story of Israel and the apostolic authority of the church, right? Um, the gates are the 12 tribes, the foundations are the 12 apostles. Like, again, there's this statement that the church is, it's the story of Israel and it's the story of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's all wrapped up in the people of God. Uh, it... <laughs> This is one that doesn't get a lot of, of notice, probably because we don't look at the ocean the same way the ancient peoples did. But clear back at the beginning of the chapter, it said, now there's no sea anymore. And uh, every time I teach this, people are like, oh, but I love the beach. I'm like, I know, I know. Uh, but in the ancient world, the sea was the source of evil. Uh, that's where everything evil came from. Uh, when A uh, great example of this is when the disciples are out on their boat and they're just kind of crossing the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and they see someone walking towards them. They don't go, hey, Jesus. They say, oh, it's a ghost. Because what else would be walking on the water except some evil spirit? 
Because the water is the place that evil comes from. Uh, so it's so by by Revelation saying it has no sea anymore, it's not God hates beaches and you shouldn't go to them. It's saying uh, there's no evil anymore. There's there's no there's no source of evil in this new creation. All of that has been dealt with. It's all in the lake of fire. But the symbiology also for many waters or seas refers to types or tribes of people. So could it also be that there's no more clans or sure it could yeah everybody's on their own i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i could see that no more identities Mm -hmm. as a class or a group Mm -hmm. yeah certainly and again the the beauty of him just saying there's no c is it could be both of those things right it wouldn't we wouldn't have to choose one of those and so yeah i i hadn't thought of that but that's a good another good way to read it um Okay, uh, it has no temple and no sun uh, because God lives in the city, right? They don't need light because God is the light. Uh, this, is, this, this is all very uh, Johannine imagery, right? John is the gospel where Jesus is the light of the world. Um, and so uh, it makes sense that you wouldn't need any other exterior source of light. Uh, again, that's not because God hates suntans. It's the symbolic language to say that God is really among people. We don't need these substitutes anymore. We don't need these half measures anymore. We don't, we don't need a temple anymore. Um, because the temple was where people went to meet God. Well, now God's everywhere. God's with us. God, we can just, we're with God now. Aren't we at this time, we being all of mankind, in a body unlike what we are in now? Uh, you mean on the other side of the resurrection? Right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, maybe light. I mean, right now we use our our sight senses to be able to, to see things. We need a source of light in the flesh, whereas in that case we're going to be more of a spiritual body, even though it, it is a body. Uh, when Jesus came back, he was in a body, but it could, it could go through walls. Sure. You know, and move from place to place. So light probably has a totally different function there. Sure. Yeah, um, I think that this, I think that the language here is a lot more symbolic. Again, drawing on uh, the same kind of thing when uh, we see in the Gospel of John. And even, I mean, even in, I think it's in chapter 22, it says, um, you know, they, they won't need, they won't need a lamp or a sun because, because God is their light. So it's not, it's not saying like, we'll, we'll have different bodies and not need light. It's just saying like, we, we, the light that we need, whatever, whatever that means, God is our source of that. So, again, it's hard for me to imagine uh, a creation, a new creation without sun and and beaches and and stuff like that because those things, I I love those things so much. And they're they're great, beautiful things that God has created. So I'm I'm unconvinced that when we we see whatever this this world is that God is creating, that there's actually not going to be a sun and actually not going to be beaches and stuff. Again, I think think the power of what John is doing is in the symbolic language that that we, 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 uh, we won't need these things. Because they've been done away with, and God is in the midst of us now. Not to jump ahead, but is that kind of part of the reason why he's talking about all like the, the foundations with the precious stones? Because once again, they're, they're not going to be necessary anymore. So basically, like saying they're taking all these things that have been brought up as more precious than the gold, and now they're just put into our wall. Yeah, and I, and I think I think it's again, you're you're this is supposed to be a place you want to be. Right, and that's like you, you see it, and you, you're you're like awestruck by how beautiful and huge. I mean, I think when what is what did it say? It was like fifteen thousand miles or something like that. Like, if you actually saw a city that was fifty, I don't know how. 
I don't know how far it actually is from here to the moon in miles, but like that'd get at least halfway, I would think. <laughs> um, I think it's two hundred fifty-six thousand. Oh, maybe so. Maybe not halfway then, but it'd be pretty far out there in space. So, I mean, again, the, the, it's it's less about like again. Here's here's that. I don't think John's trying to get us to diagram out the city. That's that's why I had that picture up there earlier because it's just it, you're more supposed to just be struck by the by the awesomeness of what it. Like, try to wrap your head around God living with people, like, fully, without, without half measures, without a, you know, without, you don't have to go to a temple and there's veils and, you know, sac- like, no, it's just like, it, all that's done, and now we're just, we just live with God. Like, that's it. That's, that's the period. End of the story. Like, how, how do you wrap your brain around that? Well, I don't know. Let's start with a giant city and put a bunch of jewels on it, and let's then start using these metaphors. Like, there's no sun because you don't need a sun, and there's certainly no temple because we don't need a temple, and you know, there's no sea because all that's been done. You know, um, I think that's what's going on here. Um, okay, yeah. So the light, the light of God. And here, here's where I think you're kind of getting this more metaphorical sense of light. It's drawing all of the nations to God, right? Um, here's another interesting one. The gates of the city are never shut. Again, we don't do this because we don't do city gates anymore. But in, in, in the ancient world, all cities had gates and big, huge walls. And that was for protection. Uh, and so at night, the gates were all shut. Because, you know, at night it's easier for people to sneak in. And so city gates were security. They were we, like their national defense, right? That's your national defense budget in the ancient world went to city gates. Um, and raising a military. So uh, so for, for it to say that the gates are never shut, right? there's this, again, a powerful statement that, that these people don't need security. And of course they don't because God is living in the middle of it. Right? And, and it goes on to say there, um, you know, there's no night, so there's no never even a time for the gates to shut and all of that. Um, but even so, and this is the cool part, even with, no, even with the gates never shutting, nothing unholy comes into the city. Right, nothing is nothing is in this city except that which was written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, uh, and then as we get into chapter twenty-two, the River of Life runs through the middle of the city. Now, again, there's some cool stuff going on here. What time? Okay, we got plenty of time. Uh, back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel was one of the prophets who lived when Jerusalem got conquered by Babylon, real Babylon, and the temple got destroyed. Okay, and so there's this horrifying vision that Ezekiel has where this divine God's divine chariot descends out of the sky and it's at the temple and the the divine presence of God actually leaves the temple in Jerusalem and gets into its divine chariot and leaves and so Ezekiel was that that was Ezekiel's way of communicating God's final judgment on that temple and on the people in Jerusalem and so they like you I mean just it's hard for us to imagine because we don't think of our churches as places where the physical presence of God like lives on the earth. But like, in, I mean, for the Israelites, there was one place in the entire world that they could go to interact with God. And it was the temple in Jerusalem. And that was because God physically dwelled in the holiest place, in that holy of holies, between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and God physically lived there. It was like his physical representation on earth. And that was the only place in the world that you could go to interact with God. And so then Ezekiel comes along, he's like, I actually had this vision. And God called a cab. And he left. And he's gone. Because you've been so sinful and so idolatrous. And he's just, he's tired of it. And so you're on your own now. Good luck. And so then sure enough, the temple gets destroyed. 
And then later in Ezekiel, he has this really cool prophecy where God is showing him the promised restoration that's coming. And so Ezekiel gets to see this new temple. And then, uh, if you remember back in chapter 11 when John had to measure the temple, like Ezekiel actually had to measure the temple, right? And then he sees this river flowing out from the temple. And uh, I should have had a map of Jerusalem. I'm going to draw a map of Jerusalem. So Israel kind of looks like, uh, you know, it's long and skinny. Um, Jerusalem's like here. Um, the Sea of Galilee is up here. And then the Jordan River runs down from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, okay? And so the temple's here, and uh, the, the, the doors to the temple face uh, east. They face this way, right? So they're looking out this way. And so Ezekiel is standing near this new temple, this temple that doesn't exist right now because the temple's been destroyed, right? So God is showing him this vision of this temple that's going to be rebuilt, and he says, uh, he says, just watch, Ezekiel. And so, it, uh, so oh, also, all of this is desert. It's the when it says the the Judean desert, it's desert. That's where uh, that's where John the Baptist lived, and they ate locusts and honey. And when um, when the like when the Israelites came up from Egypt, they had to come up here like through the we call it wilderness, which is like a really nice word, but it's a desert. It's a horrible hot place where there's nothing like it's a desert. Um, and it's all and then it goes shockingly the dead sea is in the middle of the desert like it's just a horrible place where there's nothing and you can't drink the water and it's just dead everything's dead right so he sees this vision and and god says watch this and this river starts to flow out from the temple and it flows out from the out of the doors of the temple which means it's flowing east and it, it floods all of this and it runs all the way down to the dead sea and everywhere it flows life just explodes out of the ground and so there's this vision of and god says when i restore like i'm going to I'm going to restore. I'm going to really restore. So, fast forward. Uh, Herod the Great. Well, actually, so they all come back from exile. They build a new temple. But, like, the new temple is not as good as Solomon's temple because Solomon was way rich and everyone else was after Solomon was not because they were all basically, like, a vassal state and they had to give all their taxes to their empire. And so this new temple, like, the people, when they rebuilt it, they were like, it's not as good as Solomon's temple was. Well, then Herod came along, and when Herod the Great, the, the way he was, he was doing all kinds of stuff that made the Jews mad, and so in order to keep the Jews happy, he dumped all of this money in temple expansion. He actually turned the second temple, the replacement temple, into one of the marvels of the ancient world. I mean, people came from all over the Roman Empire to see Herod's temple because it was just so awesome. Um, so Jesus... Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in John 7, and I think I put this in your notes, so you can go read it later. Uh, there's a scene in John 7 where it's at the end of one of the feasts. And Jesus is standing at the gates of the temple, facing east. And he says, um, he says, come everyone who is thirsty and drink. Right? And so there's this image in John, and he has already, remember, he's already had this conversation with a Samaritan woman in John 4, where he says... You've got this water, and you keep drinking it, and it keeps making you thirsty. But I have this water that I can give you, and if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty, and because it will lead you to eternal life. And so then this, then Jesus stands on the east gates of the temple, and he reenacts the scene from Ezekiel, where he becomes this water, this river that's flowing to eternal life. And then John actually says, now no one really understood it yet, but he was actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is that thing that flows out into the world and brings restoration and brings beauty and all of that. And so now we get to the end of Revelation, and what do we see flowing out of the middle of the city of Jerusalem? There's no temple anymore because I need a temple. But what's flowing from God and the Lamb, which is what's in place of the temple? Flowing from there is this river of life. 
that's flowing out and restoring everything. So I don't know, I just thought that was a really cool like link how the biblical writers all use use each other. And then finally, the coolest thing is humanity once again has access to the tree of life. We haven't seen the tree of life since Genesis 3. When we looked at it and we were like, eh, I think I'll take the other one. Right? And so now, in the city of God, in the new Jerusalem, in the renewed creation, we have access to the tree of life again. Sin has been dealt with. It's not a barrier anymore. Now we get to live with God forever. And the fruit of the tree of life is what brings healing to the nations. Now, here is what I want to suggest to you. Take a look at this list. I don't see anything on this list that cannot and should not be true of the church today. I would suggest to you that the city is not only a picture of what is to come, though it is certainly that, but it is also a picture of what the church can be today. Because the resurrection of Jesus has welcomed us into the the people of God. And we should be an outpost of this city now. If, If that is our true kingdom, if that is our true home, and we're not there yet, but, but we could think of ourselves as uh, an, an, an embassy of that. And you know how embassies work, right? Um, the German embassy in Washington, D.C. is German soil. And U.S. law doesn't apply there. German law applies there. The U.S. embassy in Germany is the same way. When you're, when you're in the embassy, you're on native soil, wherever the embassy is. And so I would suggest to you that that the church today is meant to be an embassy of this city. It's meant to be a place where these things are true, where the way of God is true. And of course, right, of course, we're not going to do this perfectly because we still live in a place where there is evil. But we are founded on the story of Israel and on the apostolic authority that Jesus gave to the church, right? We don't need a temple. And we don't need a sun because Jesus is our light. The light of God is meant to draw the nations to us. That's what Jesus said, right? You are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. People ought to look at your good deeds and give glory to God. People ought to see the light that's coming from you and they ought to be drawn to God, which is what this city does. We... Trust God for our security. We don't need to fear outsiders. We don't need to fear people who are different from us because our security is with God. We ought to be a place that is only holy, not unholy. If the river of life is the spirit, as John says in his gospel, then that's certainly something that we have access to right now. And... Our eternal life began the moment we were converted, the moment that Jesus made us into a new creation, and it extends into eternity, certainly, but it began now. We're already experiencing that, and we spent a whole nine weeks this past year talking about the fruit of the tree of life in our own lives and how that's meant to be something that is for the healing of the nations. And so, 
When I read this text, I see Jesus offering us a vision of what we can be and what we should be. That we're an embassy of the kingdom of God in the middle of a world that has yet to be redeemed. And again, we've seen that all the way through Revelation. We have a prophetic obligation to live out the life of Christ in the midst of the people around us. To call them with our actions, with our lifestyles. To call them to repentance. To call them to God. To call them out of Babylon. Okay, we have a few minutes left. I want to tr- try to go back through... And, and again, just look one more time at all of this in big picture. Any, any thoughts, any comments about the city before we kind of zoom back out? Okay. Uh, it's referred to as the bride of Christ, and if you take that to the nth degree, we all want to be part of that. Yeah. So, yeah, we automatically are included into it. Whether we see this as something that's going to happen in the future or something that's happening now, I mean, all scripture is full of typologies over and over and over again. It's, it's God trying to, to tell us up front what we can't understand right now, but we will in time. And so it you know, perfectly matches into the obligations, as you said, of the church to, uh, to be the light to the world, that, that vehicle that God uses. You know, Jesus said, it was imperative that he go away so that uh, we can do greater works than his. You've know, you got to kind of run that through your head and say, gee, what that <laughs> But Jesus said it, so... He did. Yeah. Okay. So, we began with a revelation of Jesus to these seven churches. And the question was, how do we remain faithful in a faithless culture? Uh, Then we went into the heavenly throne room. We saw that the clear message was that God is king. Not Rome, not anyone else, God. That Jesus brings peace. He brings Pax. He brings human fulfillment. Not Rome, not anyone else. And, importantly, that the church is to embody that message to the world. We can't get away from that part of it. And so then we saw in this last huge section that Satan has been defeated, so his his only weapon is compromise. And so we must actively resist Babylon. We must actively pursue the way of the Lamb. And we do this now. We don't wait We do it now. Always, always, always. This is a pressure that's on us. This is a temptation that's on us. From now until the end, which is not here. We're we're in that. It's coming, but it's not here. But it's coming, but it's not here. But it's coming, but it's not here. We are in that tension. We We got a peek at the end, right? John pulled back the veil of reality and let us peek behind it too. But we're not there yet. We are living in the tension, just like the seven churches were. And so we need this revelation of Jesus as much as they did. So I want to ask, so what? I'm going to leave you with homework, even though we don't ever have class again. So it's on you to do it. First of all, thinking back to the seven churches, 
the answer to our problems as a church is always the person and the work of Jesus. He's he's the first and the last. Uh, He's the beginning and the end. Uh, One way that the scriptures say it, when they say author and perfecter, what they really mean by that is that Jesus started our faith and he's completing it. He's the beginner and the finisher. He's the author and the perfecter. So everything in the church always comes back to the person and the work of Jesus. If I'm not sure what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of my culture, I probably need to spend some more time getting to know Jesus better. Right? If I'm not sure uh, where our church should go in a particular direction, we need to spend some time getting to know Jesus better. Um, that, that That was the first thing that Jesus said to all seven of the churches. was like, hey, take a good look. I remember each of them needed a different aspect of him, right? We got that first big crazy picture of him in chapter 1. But then to each of the seven churches, he said, to the angel in the church at blank, write this, I am he, and then it was some different piece of that description, right? So it was always different. What each church needed to remember and needed to be reminded of, maybe needed to learn about Jesus was different, but it's always about Jesus. And we can never know him too well. And we can never chase after him too much. Uh, Second, thinking back to the throne room and all of that. uh, As the church, we know the way of God. And if we don't know it very well, we take care of that with the first part, right? Get to know it better. We know the way of God. And we have a prophetic obligation to live out the way of God in the midst of an unfaithful culture. And it needs to be our lives not just our words. That should be calling the people around us back to Jesus. Uh, it looks like lamb power, not lion power. We win by dying. We conquer by sacrificing, right? We give, we serve, we love. Because that's what Jesus did. And the, church, the, the world ought to be able to look at us and see Jesus. That was the story of the two witnesses. If they wrote out a timeline of our life, they ought to be like, that looks familiar. I've heard that somewhere before. And finally, thinking back to that last piece of the cosmic war, um, Satan's most powerful weapon is compromise. So we must always be looking to Jesus to be sure that we are not straying into the ways of Babylon. Because the enemy is deceptive. The, the peace that Babylon offers is always enticing. It's always going to be easier. It's always going to look better in the short term. But we know how the story ends. If you didn't before, you do now. And so we need to remember what our, what our responsibility is. And that is be faithful to the testimony of Jesus. Make sure that your life looks like his life. Because that is, that is the life that is really life. That is the life that endures, that, is not, that does not have to fear the second death. So, here's your assignment. And we're not, not going to do this now. This, this is on your own. You, you never have to open the book of Revelation again. Um, I hope you do, because obviously I love it a lot. But, we're not meeting again. One of you wants to throw an apocalypse party on December 21st, I'll, first I'll come to it. Um, we can talk about this then, I guess. But we have no more formal meetings left. So here's, here's what I want you to do. Um, first of all, review the seven churches. Spend some time with them. 
I think you'll be surprised if you go back and read them now how much you'll recognize from everything that's gone on in the book. If you want a game to play, take the promises that they're all given at the end and then pair them up with stuff that's in the New Jerusalem that we just read. It's cool. But here's what I really want you to do with them. Which of the seven churches best describes you? Which one is it? And what was Jesus' message to that church? That church that best describes you. And then as you think back through the book and as you review your notes, maybe as you read this text over the next month, um, how do you see Jesus' promises and Jesus' warnings of that church played out through the book of Revelation? And then what does that, what does that mean for you? Uh, second, spend some time on those characteristics of the New Jerusalem. Read Revelation 21 and 22 a few times. Um, which of them do you most embody? Which of those do you think describes our church well, and where do you think our church needs to do better? Uh, one, there are there are a couple of commentators that describe when they get into talking about Revelation 21 and 22, they say that this is an example of where apocalypse drags the future into the present. Where it says, yeah, yeah, we know, we know that that's what's coming, but we don't have to wait. Like, we can, we can grab it and drag it here, uh, which I think is a wonderful uh, analogy. And then finally, and I hope you have an answer for this. <laughs> Not now, but I mean, I, just, I, hope, I, hope you, I hope that it has. How has the revelation, how has this revelation of Jesus changed you? And because of that change, what does your life look like moving forward? Are the things that you're going to be more mindful of? Are the decisions that you need to come to terms with? How has it changed you? How has it shaped you? Um, maybe it's just made you more faithful. Maybe it's strengthened your resolve. But, but hopefully, hopefully this revelation of Jesus has done something in your life. Uh, so even though, even though we're done with class... Uh, we are actually going to be doing Revelation in, on Sundays uh, throughout the month of December. So you guys all have a leg up. <laughs> um, we, we did that because, you know, uh, every, well, first of all, it seems like everyone has apocalyptic fever. Uh, two of the biggest shows on television right now are post-apocalyptic shows. Uh, one's The Walking Dead and one is a show called Revolution. I don't know if anyone watches any of these things. But, like, if you look at ratings, they're the shows that everyone everyone is watching these two shows. And they're both apocalyptic shows which is just fascinating that that you know there's always been like a little niche of people that have thought this stuff was cool but now it seems like everyone thinks it's cool and it should always make us wonder why like why what what is it that people not christians but people are nervous they're fearful about stuff that's another big one yeah how many people have you heard talking about well i don't know if this december 21st thing is real or not it's not but i don't know you know i don't know maybe and and there's 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 all this anxiety about the end of the world and so we thought well goodness we should take advantage of that because the bible actually says a thing or two about the end of the world and uh you would think it'd be weird to do it at christmas but in the Advent celebration, remember, now what Advent is, we don't do this in, in America anymore because Christmas starts in October, but traditionally in the Christian Christmas celebration, Advent was a time of fasting and waiting and preparing yourself to welcome Jesus, right? So that's why you'll even see this in some more traditional churches. There's no Jesus in the manger up until Christmas Eve, right? Because he hasn't come yet, right? We're, wait, we're waiting. And so, yeah, we know Jesus already came, but we're we're uh, symbolically participating in the waiting that Israel did for the Messiah to come, right? And then when Christmas gets here, we celebrate. But 
something that the church has always done when they've celebrated Advent, is they've said, well, you know what? Just like Israel waited the first time, well, we're waiting too. We're in that tension of that. He came, but he's coming again. And, and we're longing for the redemption of creation, for all of these final things to happen. And so throughout Christian history, in the celebration of Advent, there's also been an anticipation of the second coming. And so uh, during this Christmas time at, at, here at Beaver Creek Nazarene, we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be in the book of Revelation just a, uh, a little bit. We're going to be in the original Christmas story. And we're going to be looking at how both preparing ourselves to welcome the Christ child and preparing ourselves to welcome Christ the King uh, look similar and what that means. And I think it's going to be a tremendous amount of fun anyway. And we'll probably get some people that are all freaked out about the mind calendar. And on Advent week four, which is December 23rd, we'll get together and say, Woo! So, anyway, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm very excited to spend some time with the, the, the whole church body in, in here. And obviously, we're not going to go into nearly as much detail and have nearly as much fun as we did in here. But I'll have a little bit of fun. So, anyway. We are, yes. So, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, all four. Well, actually, we're doing five Sundays. Advent's only four Sundays. Uh, but we'll, And then we'll be doing it. Um, the Christmas Eve thing, and then we'll actually do the last Sunday in November. We'll do uh, the New Jerusalem. So, and end with a bang. So, um, and then yeah, for the New Year we'll be talking about Genesis because you know after you talk about the end, you might as well go back and talk about the beginning. So, <laughs> um, I, I I want to close us by reading the very last bit of Revelation. There's some wonderful uh, blessings and prophecies, but we have a couple of extra minutes. Does anyone want to make any comments or ask any final questions or? Any observations? Something that I, I think is really huge, which I've not seen mentioned through this whole study, because the word isn't specifically used, but that is grace. Oh, okay. I mean, we are saved by grace through faith, mm-hmm. and we are actually sustained by grace through faith. Uh, our entire walk on this earth, and probably through eternity, is going to be by grace. And the faith, and the faith is even a gift. Mm-hmm. So it, it's real easy to look at the Book of Revelation and try to see what I saw when I first was born again, and that is the d- despair in the heart, saying, "I'll never be able to measure up." Well, what somebody needed to tell me then and never did was, "You're right. You never will measure up because everything I have, everything I'll ever have, is always found in Christ." Yep. I heard one thing that, that helped me, and that is when somebody said, and I'm probably from a, a theological standpoint, it's not a very good statement, but it helped. And that is when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. And that always kept that frame of reference mm-hmm. then to say, okay, my, my identity is found in Christ, not in myself. If you can read through the book of Revelation and you're only looking from your own standpoint, yep. you might as well just... Do yourself in because you're lost. You're not going to make it. But as long as your identity is found in Christ, which is the only mention that's close to that is, you know, those name whose name is found in the Book of Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the only reference to graces I see in the whole. Yeah, thing. I think another another place would be the sealing of the believers. Um, right on the forehead. Yeah, and that they're they're sealed. It's done. Like it's it's finished. Uh, and then they're they're good. You know, like they they. And it's, I was actually thinking about it as I, was, as I was preparing the lesson tonight, and I was thinking back through especially chapters 12 through 22, how, like, 
relatively little screen time, so to speak, uh, Jesus and the armies of the Lamb get compared to the armies of evil. Like, they're they're in there for, like, five verses, and then they're gone again. It's like, meanwhile, back to the evil stuff. Um, and I, I think that's telling. I think it's like, you know, there there isn't... Again, that's sort of the message. There isn't much for believers to do. Like, you're, the work was finished on the cross. And so you're only... Your only responsibility is to remain faithful to the testimony of Jesus. You know, that's but there comes the, the uh, perception that the enemy brings in. That's try to a believer tries to convince us that there still is something we have to do. Right, right. That's what, that's what always gnaws at the yeah. back end of your head. Yep. Uh, saying, well, you still you still need to do more. Well, no, Jesus did it all. When he said it's finished, yep. it was finished. Yep. We just have to realize that. Yeah, living. yeah. And that's where that grace the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to get us through the rest of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't take that viewpoint, though, when you're looking through this, it's pretty desperate. Yeah, absolutely it is. And and I think in part that's the point, right? You're, if if there was any hope that like, oh, don't worry, you'll be all right, you know, in any of this, that would set us up for failure. It's like, oh, okay, well, I just need to try a little bit harder and then I'll be good. No, you will not. So yeah, good, great. Other thoughts? You know, one of the things that we see in, in our society, and I really don't want to get into the politics of it so much, but um, there's a, a growing antithesis to uh, between the individual and the power of the state. And we see it in our own country. Mm-hmm. I think subliminally it has a lot of people concerned and it's part of this agitation. Because uh, as the as the state grows and creates the dependency of the people on the state, our politicians begin to compromise their principles. Mm-hmm. And what we hear from the political pulpits is compromise, compromise. And then as one continues in that spirit, if you will, of compromising, you see the power of your life over to yeah. the state. Absolutely. And that seems to be growing uh, in this country. Absolutely. So there's this, and where does one draw the line? You can see the big things, but it's the little things that suck us in. And yeah. When does one bow the knee, mm-hmm. will, and and take the uh, and begin to worship this? Yep. And, and what does that worship really mm-hmm. consist of? It's, is it saying, uh, I'm I'm now getting all my money, if you will, from the state, so therefore the state becomes a God to me mm-hmm. in one sense, and I could be cut off. Yeah. And then this tension seems to be growing in this country. Uh, and I agree with that. I, I read a good article from a commentator after the election. He said what it meant to him was that the people in this country are, are basically giving up on the family and the church and turning to the state. Mm-hmm. And he made some very good arguments for it. I can't remember all the arguments, but I, I thought, wow, that kind of rings true. 
uh, I thought what he said was pretty good, and then I said, well, you know, based on Revelation, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I almost... Okay, sorry, Adam. Oh, no, I mean, I just think and that's where the church has to step in and power the individuals, because it's not... Regardless of what you know, the state does, the state of Ohio, you know, what, whatever laws they pass, I make a choice of whether or not I want to follow this. You know, and I think if my compass is set, then then I think that I am capable of making the correct choices and the correct decisions. So regardless of what our elected officials do or say, I mean, they can they can ban prayer in schools, they can ban prayer in public places, but that doesn't mean that I don't have to do it, or, or I'm not allowed to do it. Like, I can still choose to do those things. Uh, I almost, <laughs> I almost brought in a video of uh, President Obama's victory speech that he gave after Romney conceded. Um, and I, I assume that you guys probably don't read my blog because I don't think most people do, but uh, I actually wrote a post about the speech because when I watched it, I was totally blown away by how explicit the Pax Americana was in his victory speech. And uh, I was careful I was careful to not take sides and say, you know, Romney, even during the campaign, made some similar claims. And if you want to pick on a Republican saint, President Reagan made... Uh, just as explicit, though not all in one place, claims as President Obama did in his victory speech. But uh, it was very much, uh, America is bringing peace and salvation to the world. And it's going to come through this, 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 and this. And a lot of it was uh, quintessential American dream myth. He said, if you work hard, and you, you know, just... Uh, everyone deserves a chance to work hard and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and make something of themselves. And that's what, that's what salvation comes from. And I was like, you know, I, I think everyone should have the chance to work hard and make something out of themselves, but let's not call that salvation. Let's not, let's not say that that's rescue. Let's not say that that's what humanity needs to fulfill human destiny. Those are good things. But the, the best idols are good things. Right? I mean, there's a reason Satanism is not a huge religion. Right? Because people are like, eh, worship the devil, no thanks. Right? I mean, the best, the best idols are things in our lives that are good things that we ought to value. And then we just value them too much. And we get them out of order. And, and that's, again, I think that's what Revelation was warning about. And, it, and if we're to take its message seriously, that's where I think it's really hard. You know, uh, it's much harder to look at the good things in our lives. Uh, those of you who were here Sunday and heard Pastor Sheila's message, I thought she gave a great analogy where she, you know, she's an exerciser. And she said, I love to run, and it energizes me, and my day's better when I've had a run in, but I had gotten to this point where it had become a little bit more important than everything else in my life. And so I had to reevaluate. You know, who's going to say, oh, people shouldn't exercise and be healthy. God doesn't, God doesn't, God gave us these bodies, but he doesn't care how we treat them. You know, like, no, no one's going to say that, right? These are good things, but they get out of order. And, and again, I think, I think that's, that's something important we need to remember in Revelation. Anyway, we're, we can talk about this all night. We're out of time. I just want to say I appreciate all of the time you've invested in this class. I hope that you found it encouraging and challenging and useful. Uh, I hope it's clear by now I love this book. Uh, I love studying it. I love talking about it. I love disagreeing about it. Um, and I, I love 
the picture of Jesus that it gives us. So I want, I want to close our time together by reading the last bit uh, of Revelation. There's several really great blessings and promises in here, and then I'll close this in prayer. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who worship, uh, those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the fornicators and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus, who send my angel with you, uh, to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your servant John, who gave us this prophecy. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have together and to consider your message to those seven churches and to us. Uh, We're grateful that they let us read their mail and air their dirty laundry so that we could see in them a reflection of ourselves. Uh, Even though we're 2,000 years removed, even though our culture looks nothing like the culture of ancient Rome, uh, we're grateful that we could see that the the human heart is still the human heart. It doesn't matter what culture it's in. Uh, That same problem is still at the root there, and and we need you. You're the only way to, to heal us, to restore us. And so as we leave this time that we've been able to spend together, studying your scriptures together, wrestling with your challenging and difficult words together. We ask that that you would continue to keep this revelation of your son Jesus close to our hearts and in our minds. We ask that it would be something that would continue to stay with us, that, that would change the way we see the world around us, that would change the way we hear the promises that are made in, in commercials and by politicians and by uh, everyone who uh, is not you. We ask that it would help us to remember the good things in our life and to keep them in a good and a healthy order. Most of all, we ask that it would, it would begin to change the way we worship. Uh, that, that we would be a people who are faithful to you and that we, we would be a church that looks like an embassy of the new Jerusalem here in the present. That your light would shine brightly in this dark world and that the, all of the nations of the world would be drawn to you because of the work that you have done in our lives. So as we go tonight, 
May we also pray uh, with your prophet John. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everyone.